Despite our faithlessness, God remains faithful. Despite us as a people, that we are broken, messed up, uh, we, we are just slogging through life, doing things, and just, just making mess of everything that we put our hands on, God remains faithful to us. And so when we come together, that's primarily what we're doing. We are reflecting that truth. And so when the external benefits of community are readily perceivable by us, what we don't do is set that aside and say, you know what, maybe this whole community thing is informal. Because in Scripture, it's given, it's not an option. It's not, that doesn't mean that we're together all the time or that we even like each other all the time. What it means is that we come together and we're together regularly and we love each other the way that Christ loved the church. The church... We, us, the people of God, are a messed up group of people. That's okay. If you come into this group and you don't see somebody here you've been offended by, then then probably it probably we're doing something wrong. Like we are called to be together regardless of what it is that um, what it is that we feel internally and primarily as a reflection of what God is doing or has done among us. So when we come together in, on a morning like this morning, we recognize that then the needs of the community are elevated to the, above our own personal needs, our own personal whatever it might be that we feel that we need coming into a space like this. What does it look like that we need? And we probably have come here this morning with some kind of, with some kind of 
thought process, man, I just really need to hear this, or I need to, maybe that's subconscious, but it, but it exists. At some level, we have come here desiring something that we need. And yet, when you come to know Jesus, you have been given a blood-soaked invitation not to have your needs met or to flourish here in this life, but you have received a blood-soaked invitation that is calling you to die to those. And so we together as a people come into, we affirm that whenever we get together. We affirm that whenever we get together. We do not come here as a people looking to obtain something for ourselves, but in some sense to elevate the community's needs above our own. So, let me give you some practical legs to put on that, okay? So, one thing that we have struggled with as a body is, um, is caring for our children. That's one thing. The community as a whole has struggled with caring for our children. There are two sets of kids, that, uh, one up front and one downstairs this morning. And we have struggled to find people just to spend time with those kids. We affirm on Sunday morning that we together as people are a community. The kids are part of that just as much as, as we are here sitting up here in the room. And so what we need is to understand that the needs of the community are greater than our own personal needs. We've heard a lot of excuses, and that's fine. Maybe it's not your call. Maybe you're bad with kids. That's okay. What we need you to do is set aside your own personal needs and say, you know what, the needs of the community, we need to invest in our kids. We need to invest in the people that Jesus looked at and said, don't keep them from me. Let them come to me. Let them come to me. And maybe this is something that's, maybe that rubs you wrong a little bit. But at the same time, like that's what we're here to do. We're here to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ is an offensive thing. It's not something that's easy to understand, or it's not something that's easy to live out. But Jesus came and he said, this is not convenient for me. In fact, the, 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 the whole process of Jesus coming to earth to die is the least convenient act that ever, ever occurred on the face of this earth. And so we are called to follow him into that. We too often are low-commitment, low-cost Christians. And yet, Jesus experienced the highest cost and the highest commitment ever. So what we need to do is walk out of that understanding. We need to do is walk out of that and say, no, no longer are we low-cost, low-commitment Christians. What we're going to do is follow Jesus into his death and understand that the needs of whatever perceivable needs that our community has come first. Come first. If that doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. Come talk to me. We can process that together. That's something. It takes me about six months to get an idea out. So this has been two days worth of thinking. So if, if it doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. It's probably because I failed to communicate it adequately. So come talk to me if, if you need to talk more about that. Okay. Let's turn together to the book of James. Like I said, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 this morning. Let me read this for us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. 
and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and per every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of, a kind of first fruits in his creature. <coughs> so, together as we've begun studying together the book of James, we begin thinking about what James is talking about throughout chapter 1 so far, um, I think it's important to just take a step back and look at what we've seen so far. And I think in a lot of ways that um, the Spirit inspired James when he inspired him to write this letter to these Jewish Christians spread out um, over the region, he wanted to give us, or give them in particular, a pair of glasses. So, a lot of you wear corrective eyewear, right? You wear corrective eyewear, I wear corrective eyewear, I'm blind without glasses. Um, some of you have contacts in, or some of you have had eye surgery, whatever that might look like for you. Um, but without glasses, or without contacts, or without that surgery, you couldn't see. And so, Probably the biggest hazard for us in our world, if we can't see, we don't have the correct power, is driving, right? So you're going to get in your car, and you can't see, and you're if I took my glasses off, I would hit everybody right away. It would be like an immediate 12-car pile, even though there's only 12 cars out there right now. <laughs> and this is kind of what James sees his readers doing, right? He sees them, like, sort of stumbling through life without this corrective eyewear, and, and they're driving through stop signs, right? They're driving through these stop signs, they can't read the billboards, and he's saying, guys, you're, you're driving through all of these stop signs. You're doing 65 miles per hour in the 35 mile per hour zone because you mistook that, that, that three for a six, and, and you're just you're going crazy, and what we do need to do is just rein it in a second here. What he says here, especially early on in this text, and what he's going to pick up again this morning in verse 12 for us, is that trials are coming and are probably here. They're probably in front of you. You're looking for worldly wisdom, he's telling his, his readers. You're looking for worldly wisdom to bail you out. But the wisdom of God isn't like that. You need some corrective eyewear to look past what is... Uh, what, Pastor is immediately in front of you, look past the end of your nose, and he's saying, here, try these on. This is godly wisdom. And he's like, oh, you guys are going to be a much better driver because you're going to read that speed limit sign, you're going to see that stop sign, and you're going to be a much, much better driver. And now instead of crashing, pulling out of the driveway, you can endure that whole trip. That whole trip. But some of us look at the glasses that James is giving us this morning, is, uh, we say, oh, that's nice, but I'll go ahead and put those on later. I'll go ahead and put on this, what, what James is communicating to us, I'll put it on later. When my kids are older, or when I, when I have kids, or when I'm married, or, or whatever that looks like. When my kids are out of the house, or when I get that promotion, or when things seem tough, when I'm not sure what's left to do, or the last resort, I'll put on these glasses. So we, as a people, wake up, we leave the glasses on the nightstand, and we get ready for the day, and we crash backing up the driveway. The glasses, they're not magic, right? They're not magic. 
The handles here are simply this, and this is what James is telling to his readers. The handles are the Word of God. The handles are uh, the community that's focused on the Gospel. The, the handles are pouring out your soul to God in prayer and, and readily admitting that apart from Him you are capable of anything. So then, considering the passage that we read just a minute ago, um, we'll think about what James is communicating to us. It's simply this this morning, that James encourages his readers to understand that godly wisdom distinguishes between what is from God and what is not. Very simple. Godly wisdom helps read, James encourages his readers to understand that godly wisdom distinguishes between what is from God and what is not. Worldly wisdom, by contrast, fails to do that. Worldly wisdom fails to do that. Worldly wisdom goes something like this. Oh yeah, th things are good. I'm, I'm doing great. Um, I'm killing it. I'm going out there. I'm going to work. I'm killing it. I'm doing whatever the kids are saying. Um, just going out there, doing whatever it is that, that I'm doing. Look at me. I'm doing some great stuff over here. And alternatively, then, when things aren't great in our world, we shake our fist at God and we say, God, how could you do this? How could this be happening to me at this time? And one thing that we benefit from in our sort of movement in this direction is, is something like social media. James Reeves obviously didn't have social media, but the draw of the human heart is not changed over 2,000 years. It's the same. It's, I'm doing something great. Come over, look at me. Or, things aren't great, God, why are you doing this to me? That's kind of what's going on here in this text now. These expressions of what James readers are looking to do. So let's consider then the text together this morning. Let's think about verses 12 through 18 in James chapter 1. Two primary themes that he's touching on here are endurance and temptation. This falls within, if you were with us in the first couple weeks, it falls within uh, trials and uh, temptations. That is one of James' themes that he wants to deal with. The other, the others are uh, wealth, and the others are wisdom, right? And so, as James pushes forward here, he wants to restate and retouch on what trials and temptations look like. So, when it comes to trials, if you look at verse twelve, um, James is sort of peppering this idea then into us. He's saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in your trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. He's peppering this idea with the contrast between the eternal and the temporary, the godly and the worldly understanding of what trials look like. The world says, you're facing tough stuff, try and go around it. That's what the world says. God says, you're facing tough stuff, stay the course, go through it, but fix your eye on something that's not temporary, but something that's eternal. See, you're giving commentary, James knew this to be true for his readers, you're giving commentary to what you believe by the way that you respond in trials, when you respond to stuff stuff. You're saying, what's here on earth, this is ultimate, this is final. This is it. It doesn't get any better than this. So I better avoid suffering. And you're saying, take a back seat, creator and sustainer of the universe. I've got this under control. 
when you go around the trials, as James warns his readers not to do, when you go around those or seek to circumvent those, you're saying, take a back seat, creator and sustainer of the universe. I've got this under control. Our two-year-old Tev this week, he was eating rice. And he was eating with a spoon. And, and I said, buddy, because it's rice and he's a two-year-old. And I said, buddy, let me help you out here. Let me, let me help you. And he looked at me, and, and his two-year-old voice said to me, No, Dad, I've got it under control. <laughs> I've got it under control. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure where he heard that phrase. <laughs> but he told me that he had it under control. And I said, and I thought, and, and it kind of caught me off guard, so I said, oh, okay, all right. But the, the fact of the matter is that he doesn't have it under control. He's two years old, and he's eating rice. He's taking a bath. He's taking a bath in rice. <laughs> but when we look at this passage, we see clearly that that's us, right? We are taking a bath in our messed up state, and, and we need to understand that what we're saying to God is, Hey, God, I've got this trial under control. I'm just going to go around it. It's going to go around it. Meanwhile, we're, we're taking that bath in it. But look at what James says in verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He's restating the result that comes through approaching child, trials with godly wisdom. The individual who approaches trials with godly wisdom is blessed. He will receive the crown of life because that's where he's fixing his eyes. That's been promised to him in Christ. Then check what James says next then in verse 13. And this is where it begins to get sticky for us. But no one say when he is being tempted. So James wants to draw a contrast here between trials and temptations and what is that? I think the Bible gives us the clearest picture of what that looks like. Um, if, if you consider Genesis chapter 22, Abraham becomes that clear portrait for us. This is Genesis 22, 1-3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham hears God. He goes up the mountain. He takes Isaac, fully anticipating to sacrifice him to God. So God's testing here um, is meant to build the faith of Abraham and expand the borders of Abraham's trust in God. So he offers up Isaac, and just as he's about to sacrifice him, the angel of the Lord intervenes, stops his hand, and God makes a provision of a ram for the sacrifice in Isaac's place. But God here, the scripture clearly tells us that God is testing Abraham. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and then he gives him the instruction. Temptation, on the other hand, what James is speaking of here is not from God. James says that it comes within, from within, your sinful flesh. If you look down the passage, 
But each one, in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what James wants his, his readers to see is that this is coming from within inside sinful flesh, not from God. It's luring and enticing by one's desires, right? Which leads to sin and ultimately to what James says is death. So what James wants his readers to hear is that God intends to use trials and difficulties that they are experiencing to produce steadfastness or endurance in them. He is intending to do that. But if they give into a fleshy response, a response that is dictated by our body and flesh, they will fall into sin, which is not from God. This is what it, if, if all of that didn't make any sense, hopefully this will. God intends to build the faith of his people, not in it. What James is speaking about is when you go through trials, when, when, when you're being tested, when difficulties are coming, God is intending to use those to build the faith of his people. But the sin that comes through temptation effectively erodes that faith. The war is waged, war that is waged is not one that operates outside of self, but one that's inside of us. If we consider uh, a story with Jesus in Mark chapter 9, um, Jesus shows up and he, he, he sees his disciples engaging with this crowd and they're arguing. They're going back and forth and, and Jesus shows up and he says, what are you, why are you arguing with the crowd? Like, what, what are you guys doing? Why are you arguing with the crowd? And they don't, even, they don't even answer because there's this guy who stands up and he shouts out and he says, Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and it foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. And Jesus doesn't say, well, hey guys, here's a laundry list, let's, let's do this, this, and this, and then the demons will come out. He doesn't turn to his disciples at all. What he says is he scolds them for their unbelief and lack of faith. And the man explains more about his son, and he says, but if you can do anything, he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, Almost, it's almost funny, right? He says, if you can. If you can. Of course I can. I created it. <laughs> All things are possible, Jesus says. All things are possible for the one who believes. And then the man makes probably the most profound statement in, in all of the New Testament and says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Our unbelief is the root of our sin. Our unbelief is the root of our sin. Jesus wants to build the faith of those who follow Him. He doesn't want to tear it down. He wants to build the faith of those who follow Him. This includes a full-on admission by this man, I believe, how my unbelief. Our belief is the unbelief is the root of our sin, which drives us to trust worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. To hear God's promises and think to yourself, now nah, I think that there's a better way. I think that there's a better way. Or God may have promised that, but not for me. But not for me. James shows his readers that their belief is what's in play here. 
He says, I'm not being tempted by God. Don't no one say I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. What he's saying is God is in the business of building faith, not breaking it down. And don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get hung up here on the words themselves. Getting hung up on language here is unhelpful. Understand when the Spirit of Christ is communicating through James is what's important. God wants to build the faith of his people. Anything that arose in is not from God. A response to trials that is aligned with godly wisdom um, is one that builds belief and results in steadfastness. A response to trials that is aligned with wisdom of the world erodes faith and results in sin. And that's why we have verses that 16 through 18. James clearly says, he is imperative, he says very clearly, he commands his readers, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is coming or is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow to change. Of his own, of his own he will, he will, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that brings us just to a few thoughts as we par parse out this, this text this morning and just a couple of things that in conclusion which will probably be more than just a couple of things. But here we go. Consider a trial or difficulty that you're going through right now. I think that we all could probably find something that's going on in the world that's difficult. Something that's going to happen this week that's going to be difficult. We can probably look in the future and say, okay, you know, we got this thing coming up and it's probably going to be a mess. So the question then coming out of that is, what is our response? What is our response to that? First is to shake our fist at God and to say, why is this happening, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Or maybe it's just to ignore God altogether and just bear down and try and get around the trial. When we look at this text, what we know and we see is that those are response is that no middle of faith. Are you looking through the trial and saying, look what God is producing in me? God is promising to produce steadfast and endure, steadfastness and endurance in me. If I proceed through the trial, keeping my focus on the promises, the eternal promises that he's provided for me in Christ. Or are you saying, this trial is too much, even for God. This trial is, this difficulty that I'm experiencing is too much, even for God. The former is faith building and the latter is faith and growth. I said this again, and I, I, I said this before, and I think that this is an admonition to us, together as a people. What you do when things are good in your world, what you do when things are good in your world, perceivably good, will shape how you respond in trials. That's really practical. What you do when things are perceivably good in your world will shape how you respond in trials. And gosh, it's hard to look at a text like this and find some rest for your soul when there's this just metric ton of trial and difficulty weighing down in your back. Right? It's difficult to look at this and say, man, I'm not sure. Like, I, there's all this going on. Everything's cloudy. I'm, I'm under this gigantic weight of trial. But if when things are okay, when they're going okay for you, if you come home from work and you sit down on the couch and you watch Netflix for three hours, or you read a romance novel, that child that's lurking around the corner is going to wreck you. It's going to wreck you. 
And when things are okay for you, you should, you should take that as your cue to press into God's word. To take time and spend time with people who can point you to God's word. To spend time, who, or spend time pouring your heart out to God. Or admitting that apart from God, that you are incapable of nothing. And that you are capable of nothing, incapable of anything. And you openly acknowledge that you're easily deceived, right? Why would James write, do not be deceived, in verse 16, if he knew that his, his readers didn't have a propensity to be deceived? Pray that all good things come to you from God. I pray you increase your understanding of that and ask Him to build your faith and not to allow your fleshy desires to erode it. Um, when we lived in Louisville, I did some photography. Um, and one thing that, probably the first question that I always got asked when you get together with family photography primarily, when we get together and people would be Stand there and and you know, position them a little bit, and then they'll say, well, "What do you want me to do with my hands? What should I do with my hands?" And I say, "You know, just do what feels natural. Just do what feels natural." And, it, and inevitably, it was something like this. <laughs> and, and I think to myself, "You you do that? You walk around like this? No, you don't. You don't do that. Nobody does that. That is the most unnatural thing that that you can do." And so, whatever, hands in pockets, whatever. Just 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 something that's natural. How do, you, how do you conduct yourself regularly in your day-to-day life? But that's kind of what we do every day, right? Every day we sort of approach reality and we're kind of doing all these unnatural things, right? We're doing all these unnatural things every single day. But as adopted sons and daughters of God, the most natural thing that we can do is to spend time together with God and His Word. It's the most natural thing we can do. We can spend time in prayer, communing with God. We can spend time with the people of God, our siblings in the faith. We want to walk around with some goofy pose. And so what we do is we just fill up our schedule. We take our kids to 37,000 activities throughout the course of the week. We sit down and we plow through Seinfeld for the 14th time. But when trials come, and we are guaranteed that they will, the Bible guarantees us that they will come for us, we're acting like they won't, we're acting unnaturally, we're going to get wrecked. We'll be wrecked by that. Seinfeld and soccer practice are not the building blocks for faith and steadfastness. They're not. When you're at home and the chores are done and the kids are in bed, you can unwind and rest, right? But what if we as a people... What if we would redefine what that looked like? What if we thought differently about what our rest looks like? What if we were saying, I'm at home, home is elsewhere. This is temporary. Let's find out more about our home, our actual real home. Let's rest in what we know is coming in eternity and not what we have right now. Let's make sure that when there is no physical or emotional or mental rest available, and there surely will not be in this life, that we see the ocean of rest granted to us in Jesus. If our faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ as Paul instructs the Romans, then we better devote ourselves to the word of Christ so that our ear might be opened, so that our faith might be built. And again, 
we mentioned this in the first week as we looked at James, and the parallels are just shocking between this passage and what we're reading here in James, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It sheds so much light for us. The author of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what the author of Hebrews is instructing us to do is lay aside the burden of that trial that you're experiencing, that sin that clings so closely because your flesh by itself set aside that sin or that faith-eroding response to that trial and endure. Run the race that is set before you with endurance because the example of it is Jesus. He established your faith he is bringing it to completion, to maturity, to perfection. All of those things are happening in you, whether it feels like it or not. And again, it is Christ who faced the trial and temptation perfectly and did so to build our belief in God and in Him. When Jesus was preparing to be arrested and tried, He spoke openly with His disciples. He just spoke to them directly, and He said to them this. He said, little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so that you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So then Peter speaks up, like he typically does, and he says... What he doesn't say is, gosh, Jesus, how are we supposed to love one another? He misses the point altogether. And he says, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus, who is never caught off guard by Peter, responds to him. And he says, where am I going? Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. And you will follow afterward. And Peter then said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Will you? Truly, truly, I say to you, rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And wow, that's a bomb for Peter, right? Jesus drops this bomb right on Peter, and he says to him, You're going to deny me, Peter. You've seen all of these things that I've done, and you're still going to stand before uh, these people who are accusing you and say, No, I don't know. I don't know that Jesus guy. But then, Jesus applies after Peter's has been devastated by the statement that Jesus makes. Jesus applies this balm to this bird. And he says, let not, your, let not your hearts be troubled. He says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going? Would I not? Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying, guys, you guys are going to screw it up. You're going to make a mess out of all of this. You're going to let your desires, like James writes, you're going to let your desires lure you into the wrong response, even a response that denies you. But that response is not ultimate. And those 
fleshy responses that you engage in every single moment of every single day. I'm going to take care of them, Jesus is saying. I'm going to take care of them. Believe in God. Believe also in me, is what he says. I will respond perfectly in the face of trial so that you don't have to. You can trust me. Don't let your heart be trained. I've accomplished it all. So could it be then this morning as we look at this text, could it be this morning that you're facing something, that you're in the middle of something, you're going through something this week and you're wondering how on earth am I going to get through this? How on earth am I going to get through The beauty of this text, the beauty of James 1, 12 through 18 is that he's giving us, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, he's giving us the ammunition that we need. This isn't a bandage or a crutch. What James is not communicating to them is, is, here's a bandage. We're not together as the people of God together sitting in the medic tent. We're together in the tent with the general discussing our strategy to go out. To get out of here. So the proper response in looking at James 1, 12-18 is to go out there and fight. And sure it's hard. No one is saying that was going to be easy. No one is saying it's going to be easy. But you have a God who, through the Spirit of His Son Jesus, destroyed sin and death, and so that and endured more than you could possibly imagine. And you might be saying this morning, man, Pastor, you should be, you don't get it, you don't know what I'm going through. And how we don't? And don't. And there's no way that I do. And no one else here probably does either. That's not where we put our faith. That's not where we put our hope. That's not where we put our trust. We don't put our trust in other people's ability to understand what we're enduring. We put our faith and our trust in, our, in the understanding that Jesus does. He endured everything. He did it also to be certain of the promised eternity set before you. The certainty of the promised eternity set before you is in Christ. The trial that you're going through is flicked aside by an all-powerful God. It is a light, momentary affliction. It might not seem like it, but it is light, momentary. Jesus went to the cross in an act of ultimate weakness and took the difficulties that you're experiencing upon himself that you've been slogging through for years and tore it like a piece of paper and sin. We should be saying, with that in mind, is look at our great God. He ended it. It's over. It's complete. The work is done. It's finished. And even when our response is a, a pile of hot garbage, whenever we look at that, we say, oh man, this is just, this is terrible. What are we going through? What I'm going through? Jesus looks at it and he says, I've made that hot garbage. I made it a diamond. So as we look at this text and just in conclusion this morning, God meets us where we are, right? He clearly has said, if I am for you, who can be against me? If I am for you, who can be against me? The admonition, the encouragement that comes out of James here is that God is in the business of building the faith of the people without a road who will build the belief that we need that's necessary for us. Thank you.